we should not be part of the metro area down here. Um, you know, we, we, we live a rural lifestyle and, you know, things like um, the five kilometre rule, everything's five kilometres from everything down here. So if you're trying to look at takeaway models and things like that for businesses, it, it's just not possible. As we go around speaking to people in the hospitality world through the pandemic, we find people at all different stages of their restaurant life. Some people have had businesses for decades. Some people have just launched new businesses. Others are waiting for a restaurant to be built. Simone Watts is in the latter camp and she's had such an interesting journey over the past few months. Simone, I confess to feeling a little bit jealous uh, when the second lockdown started <laughs> and you were traipsing around New South Wales. Yeah, we were pretty lucky. <laughs> yeah, you were. I'm so happy to have the chance to talk to you today and to hear about your journey and uh, what's happening for you at the moment. Put us in the picture. Um, yeah, so... Um, I was pretty lucky uh, a couple of months ago to have an amazing trip um, up north. We got across the border just before things closed, um, which was always sort of planned, but we ended up staying up there a lot longer than we had expected to. Um, but prior to that, um, I moved home to the peninsula after living up in the Daintree for the last three years, um, having an incredible life up there. It's an amazing place. Um, and when I got back, um, I came back sort of to be a bit closer to family it, when you're isolated up there. It, it's um it's it's a different life. So coming back here was um was really important, and I decided to um, I had the opportunity to help open a, an amazing restaurant and a brilliant property over at Cape Shank, and um, was over there sort of helping with the preliminary stages of all the, of all the planning and working casually at the time, um, and then COVID. <laughs> um, so. When COVID happened, I was sort of one of the first to be laid off back in March and for the first time in 15 years of cooking, um, I was unemployed and it was such an unusual feeling to have. You know, I've worked since I was, you know, 13 years and two months, whatever the legal age of working was. You know, my dad had me out practising my handshake so I could <laughs> go and get a job when I was – so, like, I've always worked and – you know, this thought of being unemployed was just, look, it, you know, it, it hit the ego a little bit, but also just, you know, chef, being a chef is your life and finding purpose without that um, was all of a sudden pretty challenging. That's so interesting. So when you say you were laid off, were you laid off from the casual job that you picked up in the meantime waiting for Barragunda to be built or had, or is the Barragunda project itself on hold? Where did you actually lose? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. I was working casually um, at, at, a, at another restaurant um, on the peninsula. And so Bar Bar Barragunda is still certainly moving, um, moving forward. Um, it's just uh, going a little bit slower than when expected with obviously council approval and stuff, everything's been put on hold. But as far as um, the farm goes itself, it's, I think, you know, after sort of licking my wounds of not having a job and, you know, not being able to cook and everything, I suddenly realised, hang on, I've been given this amazing opportunity to be part of Barragunda from the ground up. And, um, you know, we've been given time that we never had before and I sort of, yeah, had to snap out of that pity case and go, how am I going to use this time to, to really benefit 
um, both the farm and sort of my mental health and the greater community on the peninsula and the, the environment. Okay, so let's just pull back a little bit. And for people who don't know the Mornington Peninsula, how would you describe it? Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful little hub of community. Um, we're just so fortunate that it's so produce rich. We've got everything from you know, wine to small scale farms to dairies, but then you've sort of got the front beach and the back beach. So as far as fishing goes, you've got, you know, a whole range of different seafood in in the bay. And then on the back beaches, um, you have the same. And then we've obviously just got this magnitude of incredible restaurants down here doing a variety of amazing things. And, you know, uh, it's been so beautiful um, with this time off to see, so many restaurants um, adapting and doing amazing things, but also utilizing the time to um, really, I think, connect with the environment, which has been, I think, one of the one of the best things to come out of COVID. I've seen, you know, restaurants that you know, such as Tedesco, which was already just so incredibly beautiful, have taken this time to um, create a market garden in a biodynamic market garden um, in in the back space of um, the property. And then um, Merrick's General Store is doing a similar thing and there's been, you know, uh, amazing little sort of not-for-profit organisations. My beautiful friend Julie, who um, is the kitchen gardener over at Montalto, has started this um, lovely little um, business called Seeds Are Free and she's she collects heirloom um, varieties of seeds and you essentially send her a little postage paid envelope and she sends you this variety of um, incredible heirloom seeds back with the notion that you will grow them, you will save some seeds yourselves and you will pass them on. Wow, I'm doing that. The, <laughs> yeah, you should, you should. But that sort of, I think that business or that, that not-for-profit little thing that she's doing is a good example of of what I feel like the peninsula is. It's this warm little family that likes to likes to share, likes to connect to the environment, um, but yeah, still sort of uh, yeah, have a, have a little bit of quirk, have a bit of fun with it as well. Okay. It's so interesting that you say that because the other stuff that's coming out of the peninsula at the moment is a little bit different in tone. So there's a, um, a business owner uh, down that way who has launched a court case against the Victorian government uh, due, about the curfew, saying that it violates human rights. And there is also quite a lot of disgruntlement from restaurateurs that, that the Mornington Peninsula is counted as part of Metro Melbourne, which means that it's subject to the heaviest lockdown and is not able to reopen as other parts of regional Victoria are so it's it's so interesting that you can be living in the same region but have such different experiences and I suppose it speaks to the pandemic generally where yes we're all going through it but it does impact people in such different ways and I guess give rise to different um, pathways and different ways that people respond to it that it can be yeah they can be so divergent Oh, for sure. Look, I think, you know, that definitely needs to be recognised and sometimes my, you know, cup half full, happy-go-lucky attitude um, is definitely not to say that there is businesses here that aren't struggling incredibly. Um, And I, you know, although, you know, I don't want to get too political in court case sort of scenarios, but I agree uh, massively that we should not be part of the metro area down here. Um, you know, we, we, we live a rural lifestyle and, you know, things like um, the five kilometre rule, everything's five kilometres from everything down here. So if you're trying to look at takeaway models and things like that for businesses, it, it's just not possible. Like there's, there's 
there's many businesses that are still doing it and doing it reasonably successful successfully, but that's because they're using their staff to you know deliver everything. Not many we can't pick things up like um, like you can in the city. And the reality is that you know there's just really not that many people down here. I can go you know for a stroll on the beach and only walk past you know one or two people, and you know most of the t- the, the towns are dead. So to um, yeah, to be to be considered metro, it, it is quite unusual. The population just really isn't that dense down here, and we do live a very rural lifestyle. Mm, yeah, it's interesting. So let's talk about what it's like for you. What it's like to be a chef. You spoke about you know that that chef is really a big part of your identity. You've been doing it for a long time, and suddenly that was taken away from you. Just, just sort of put us in the picture of of your mindset. Like, what is Simone the chef like? Um, yeah, look. Like I said, sort of in the first couple of weeks in, of, of the lockdown back in March, um, I think I was really naive to how long this would go on and I thought it would be just a little while so I kind of took it as a little bit of a break and, you know, baked way too much sourdough and as my partner said, she, if anyone asked what I was doing, he just said putting shit in jars, which was <laughs> which was pretty true to be honest. I think did a lot of preserving, did a lot of baking and then went, hang on a minute you know, this is not just a break, this is going to go on for quite a while. And, you know, I was in a strange position where um, I, you know, Barragunda was still going forward and I didn't want to take on another major chef role, but casual work just was non-existent. So um, it was asking, you know, how, you know, when you're a chef, you're used to working very hard. And I sort of touched on <clears throat> this with you before of, um, for me, I started recognizing, um, especially at night, because we're so used to working nights as chefs. And I, you know, I was sitting around at night. I don't have a TV. I've never had a TV. Um, and it was like, what, what do I do with my time? And I was noticing that I was really anxious. And, um, I think, you know, for, for quite a while now, since not working nights, um, I've noticed that my body, Um, is conditioned to building up a certain amount of adrenaline and that's you know that's to push through services that's um you know what what we do as chefs but when you stop doing that your body um it naturally still builds up that adrenaline it's like if for 15 years it's used to that sort of fight situation of going not fight but yeah that situation of going into service and being really busy and being on all the time and when that's turned off your body still has that sort of chemical buildup of adrenaline. And if you don't recognize that, if you don't learn how to use it in a different way, it manifests into anxiety. And I was feeling quite anxious and quite stressed and sort of, you know, like, is there something wrong with me? But the reality was it was that, you know, I wasn't working and I wasn't out, you know, I didn't have an outlet for that, um, for that adrenaline. So, um, and then, so from from that side of things, I think exercising and getting outside is is my answer to to how I try to sort of deal with that now. You know, dusk walk. So before things go dark, you know, going for a nice big walk, connecting to the environment is is really important. But then as a chef, there's that creative side as well, and you know, you've always got ideas popping up in your head of things that you want to do. And when you don't have a kitchen, when you don't have a platform to um, to get rid of those, your mind can get quite full. So um, I think, yeah, for me, that's probably been the hardest part of not um, having a kitchen or being in a kitchen is um, just, yeah, that, that circle of, of ideas and concepts. And yeah, my poor partner is getting meals cooked for him all the time that 
I guess some people might be excited about. He's like, I really don't want to eat this giant course of beautiful food that looks like it should be in a restaurant. Can I just have, <laughs> can I just have pizza and a beer? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> uh, funny problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> so w- the the trip that you had around New South Wales, you said that 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 you'd planned that. Was that was that part of the, your strategy to um, get out, get into a different headspace? Um, well, it was sort of just planned pr- prior to COVID because it um, it matched up with some holidays and stuff. But um, it my intention with it was always to visit a series of farms up and along the way and connect with some people up north that um, are on the same wavelength as me with regenerative agriculture um, and sort of work on a few different farms and visit some people that I haven't had a chance to that have supplied me in the past, which which all which mostly mostly happened, which was great. Um, but at the same time, it was sort of at that point mid-COVID and people were fairly reluctant to have extra people on their farms and also we were the Victorian with the Victorian <laughs> number plates driving up through New South Wales getting fists shaken at us and, you know, so <laughs> it was, it was um, yeah, it was not the easiest or best time to be like on this romantic notion road trip of connecting <laughs> with a lot of people. But in saying that, we still had a really amazing time and um, saw a lot of things that we haven't seen before and I think, I think like I said to you, we, we saw – some beautiful things, but it also really opened to my, my eyes to how um, how sad a lot of the agriculture is in Australia and how far we have to go in um, in trying to make a difference in that. Well, tell me about the bad stuff first. So, when you say things things that were sad, what kind of things are you talking about? Um, well, basically, a lot of dead land. You know, a lot of um, desertification. Um, a lot of you know, poor mass scale um, industrial farming where, you know, we just, there, there was a particular spot on the border of New South Wales and Queensland where um, we had this am- amazing Gondwana rainforest that we were camping in and hiking in. And on the fringe of that, there was this, these sprawls and sprawls of um, cattle farming where the soil was, you know, it, it, it was dead. There was nothing left. There was no grass. And, you know, these poor farmers are attempting to to bring in or buy in grass and buy in water and they spend hundreds and thousands, millions of dollars on these irrigation systems to try and to bring this land back. Um, you know, and on the other side of that, you had what that area once was, which was, you know, incredible rainforest and you just start going, man, what have, what have we done to this country and how can we start to, you know, make a difference and, um, and that's where, yeah, regenerative agriculture comes in and what we're trying to do back here um, on the farm at Barragunda is, is quite similar to that. You know, we're trying to trying to farm in, in sand essentially, um, but on either side of us we have um, Greensbush and um, Fingal National Park and this opportunity to um, regenerate some pretty important um, habitat and get some um, love and health back, back into the soils that were cleared many years ago. And um, I think this time off has um, given me a chance to to be a part of that because, um, you know, to to be a chef, I think, and, and not be some form of environmentalist is is crazy because, you know, it's our future in food and, and, and as humans as well. So um, to have a better understanding of that is um, being able to um, res- respect it and, and bring it into the spotlight as chefs 
we have this voice to um, bridge the gap between farming and, and population through food. Um, so if I can understand how farming practices happen better, I can I can tell that story better through my food. Um, Joel Salatin, I was listening to a podcast a little while ago, had this quote that storytellers will lead their trades. And I, and I just love that quote so much. I, I look at so many different successful people and, and you know, I just I see that with, you know, chefs that um, I admire the most in, in the way that they tell stories about whether, you know, it, whether it's the reasons that they're cooking stuff or, you know, where the food is coming from, that, that connection and that ability to really tell a story, I think, um, connects us so much more. Tell people who don't know who Joel Salatin is. Uh, Joel Salatin's um, an American farmer who has sort of been at the forefront, forefront of regenerative farming for, for many, many years um, and has um, an amazing group of different farms um, throughout America that work on sort of his same business model. So he goes out and consults and, and helps them to, to set up farms from, you know, everything from the costings to the, the layout of um, different holistic grazing methods and a lot of that is, has been taken and followed um, in Australia as well. One of the um, really like mind-bending ideas about, of regenerative agriculture that I was chatting about recently with Grant Hilliard from Sydney Butcher and Providor Feather and Bone um, is this idea about farms, people thinking about farms more as 3D spaces. So rather than speaking of a field as, you know, uh, 10 hectares uh, that you think about, it, it, that it's actually, you think about, the, you consider the depth of the soil as part of the area and the use the arable part, the arable area of a farm. And to me, just even that simple mind switch is so radical and it speaks so clearly to the importance of soil and the fact that there's just, you know, I just think about that that cattle farm you're talking about on the edge of the rainforest and you just think, well, that is such a product and such an outcome of thinking of this as a 2D space that you just use and you just uh, there's just cattle walking on a surface. Whereas if you have that mind shift of thinking about it as it, it extends below the surface of the of the ground, that it's just you can't help but think about soil health and realise that everything springs from that. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think it, it, it's a massive turning point in in where we're going with farming and, and something that, you know, I hadn't heard to, sp- spoken about at all when, when I was younger and um, moving forward, it, it has to be something that is considered in, in, all, in all forms of farming. Um, and, you know, we have done some terrible things to our soils through, through mass industrial farming and, and the use of chemicals and um, the effects that it's had not only on the soil but our health and our microbiome is is um is is pretty detrimental and you know where it, it's so connected to to food and what we eat so f- for me if i you know if i wasn't understanding um the soil then i'm not understanding my food and if i'm not caring about the soil i'm not caring about the end product of of my food but also you know the end product of the environment and the longevity of the the environment and our and our careers and our lifestyle. Mm. So tell me about this uh, chef as storyteller idea. Like why do you feel like stories are going to be so powerful as you go forward with Barragunda and and your career as a chef? Um, hmm, That's a good question. (laughs) Um, Look, I think I've always, like the shift for me 
in, um, you know, going from, say, working in the city to, to working in the country and being connected to my farmers was because I wanted to know where my food was coming from and I wanted to know, you know, the farmers and how they farmed. And I think, you know, it goes back to the more you know about something, the more you're capable of respecting it. And, you know, like you can put that on to say, you know, a person, if you don't, if, if you've got a random stranger that you don't know, you perhaps don't trust or know or respect them because you don't know anything about them. So if you're a chef in a kitchen and uh, you're, you're cooking um, and you're taking your food out to a customer and you're telling them um, where it's from, how it's cooked, who the farmer is, not only are they going to eat a beautiful meal, but the respect that they then have for not only the farmer but the earth and the environment um, gives that meal a much more holistic form of gratitude. Does that make sense? Mm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's about connecting the dots. It's like you see yourself as as a really important link um, in connecting the the connecting all those dot points along a continuum which starts you know starts with the soil and the farm and then the how that food's produced um and then it gets to you and then you do this with it and then you do that with it and then you put it onto a plate and you take it out to the customer so I guess I suppose it's like if that story breaks down at any point then there's then disconnection follows um but I suppose you do really point to the consumer in this and that it's really important for consumers to care enough to want to listen to that story and I think there is um there is such push and pull with that I think that people are so people are definitely more interested in where their food comes from but then on the other hand I think there is uh at times uh, it's like you know I just want something to eat you know I don't want a, I don't want a narrative to go with it I don't want to have to think about everything all the time so I suppose it's some I think some of it is about trust isn't it it's like that if I come to your restaurant um even if what I really want to focus on that day is, you know, whatever occasion I'm celebrating or, you know, whatever it is, um, that I trust you, that you've done, that you, you've you brought that to the table ethically. So I suppose it's about it's about interest is a very important part of it. Trust is another very important part of it. And connection, of course, is um, what helps it all hang together and become, then, then that's the sort of, that's the part of the food system that we build together and I suppose we each carry more of the weight at different times yeah I think connection is is such a key word in in everything that's happening at the moment um you know uh I think often we we take food for granted and um you know we're so lucky in in Melbourne and Australia to have you know so many beautiful restaurants I think um we have become a, a little bit disconnected sometimes um with where food is coming from and we can sit down any night of the week and eat just ridiculously glorious food. But, yeah, if we're not asking where that food is coming from and how, we're still, we still have that disconnect there. And, you know, if, if we don't know where that food is coming from and how it's, how it's raised, um, then, yeah, we'll, we will continue, I think, to be a little bit disconnected and won't be able to... Uh, move forward in in better food systems and more ethical food systems. 
Mm. So, you know, what about someone who might say, oh, Simone, it's all very well for you down in your regional paradise, able to go and get your hands in the soil whenever you feel like it. What about me in the city? You know, I've just got my, I've got my restaurant and I've got all my bills to pay and I've got my customers who just want some fried chicken. What, what, how can I have this bucolic uh, experience and connect more with farms and the soil and uh, all these things? Do you have a backyard? <laughs> well, well, I'm fortunate that I do have a very small backyard, but yeah, I guess not everybody does. But yeah, what 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 can everybody do? Um, if you have a backyard, like I, I'm such an advocate for growing your own food, even if it's a little, you know, pot plant of tomatoes. The joy of bringing new life into the world is, you know, it does so much for the soul. And you know, if you don't have um, a backyard, a balcony, or even you know, a windowsill you know, put, save your leak bottoms and grow them on the windowsill, you know, that new life um, and growth is, is an amazing thing. And, and you'd be surprised with a small backyard and a small amount of land how much food you can grow for yourself. I think, you know, Australians, um, we love our grass. There's so much grass around <laughs> that could be utilised for growing food. You know, front nature strips, community gardens, um, and look, Melbourne does community gardens really well. And that was sort of my next point. If you don't have um, access to a backyard yourself, um, try and source your local um, community garden or, you know, places like Ceres are doing amazing things. Um, but also, you know, you've got um, Hoosbacher and Matt and Joe about to launch um, this future food system um, and this urban farming um, notion in, in the middle of the city, which I'm so excited to see unro- unravel. Um, so I think there's going to be a, a turn and a change of different ways that people can um, grow their own food and have um, more closed-loop systems within within their house in an urban environment. Um, it's certainly, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't have to be rural to be growing your own food and, and being more connected to the environment. Mm, that's such a good point. So for people who aren't aware, um, what Simone's talking about is uh, environmentalist and uh, and florist. Joe Tobacco is collaborating with Matt Stone and Joe Barrett, who are two chefs until recently at Oak Ridge. They've just announced that they're leaving Oak Ridge and they're setting up a house in Federation Square, which is, um, yeah, I guess it's, it's a house, but it's also an ecosystem. So it's going to be demonstrating ways that we can live um, in built environments uh, with a real connection to nature and in in, and to grow a lot of our own food. So, yeah, it will be a fascinating social experiment to bear witness to and I'm sure there'll be a lot of, um, yeah, really amazing uh, uh, live research that happens as they we can observe them in their home as they live through this. So it's definitely something to look forward to. Um, and, yeah, I love all the things you're saying. It also makes me think of um, a, a podcast I heard recently where it was, it was about uh, refugees and people seeking asylum who were living in uh, pretty restricted accommodation and it was a study into just giving each of them one pot plant and the difference that it made to them and to their to their mental state and it was really quite profound that just that simple act of nurturing life uh, was um, incredibly rewarding and beneficial and yeah just beyond what you might imagine just one little pot plant could be there definitely is something sustaining I guess it's really so basic but yeah we definitely don't always um 
take advantage of any small opportunity to nurture life um, in our very urban environments these days. Yeah, for sure. Look, getting getting outside what it does for the mind, uh, the body, you know, and the internal health as well is, you know, th- for, for me there's no no cure like it, the, the saying stopping to s- smell the roses, although I don't really like roses very much, maybe stop to smell the wattle blossoms or something like that instead, um, is – it's so much more profound than the way we use that saying, you know, really taking the time to stop and get outside and um, experience nature. Um, It's, yeah, it's the most uh, beneficial way to increase your health, I think. And I think during this, you know, lockdown um, period, people have really seen the benefit and hold on to that time that they have outside so much more and I guess, you know, those, those simple walks, people are really taking the time to, to take things in. And, you know, I think um, connecting to nature and asking different questions when you're out and about, you know, what is this plant? For me, it's always, what is this plant? Can I eat it? <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, <laughs> I think um, you know, when people are outside, if they do want to connect more to nature and they do want to have that feeling like you were talking about from you know, a rural environment to a city environment. Okay, perhaps it's not all farming and all edible, but, you know, just just when you're walking, asking questions, you know, is this plant native? Is this not native? Um, you know, uh, you you slowly start having this different appreciation and this different um, grasp and understanding of, of, of the environment. And you, yeah, you do feel so much closer to it. Yeah, I think that's yeah really really great. That's that's such a great question. Is it native? Is it not native? That's really so simple, but it's such a key way that we can connect with um, Australia. And uh, yeah, did that was that plant here before I was? Yeah. yeah. Um. So how are you going with the the daily rhythm and the adrenaline? Do you, and do you feel like this is something I'm wondering about a lot at the moment. Like, what do you think the gearing back up is going to be like? Do you think people are going to be resistant to those rhythms that they were in before? Or do you think everyone, all, all those uh, chefs are going to be, um, yeah, they're just going to slot back in to that, um, those peaks and troughs and um, that, that, yeah, those adrenaline-driven uh, uh, rhythms? Yeah, Look, I think it's going to be hard. I don't think there is going to be slotting in. I think it's going to be a very sort of slow um, adapting um, race back to to what it was. And I think um, I think we're probably going to have to ask the general public to be kind for a while because you know chefs have had a bit of time off. Uh, not not everyone. A lot of people. When I heard Ben the other day saying he was doing a, Ben Shuri saying that he was doing a hundred hour weeks, I suddenly felt very lazy. <laughs> So, um, no, some people are still doing massive hours, but I mean, the restaurants that have been a bit slower and haven't been able to sort of open or adapt to some of the takeaway models, when things are going back and they're opening up, I think, you know, they're going to be opening up with less staff. They will be, you know, putting new ideas together and egos and um, confidence are probably going to be a little bit low and it's going to take a while to get to get that um, that feeling and rhythm back up. So, you know, when you do have that, those initial diners coming through, sometimes that, you know, they might wait longer for food or it might not be exactly what they expected because the chef has, you know, changed their style or their mindset a little bit during this time. So I think, you know, um, critiquing and, uh, and and judging and all of, you know, your 
TripAdvisor um, reviews and all that sort of stuff, I think it will be nice if people, yeah, just be a little bit kind to chefs when we reopen because it will be, um, yeah, it's it's been a, a rough a rough ride for a lot of people. But um, for me, for me at the moment, um, sort of you know my rhythm and um, adrenaline and what I'm working on is has changed um, quite a bit. I, I was lucky when I got back from my trip. Um, I've been hired essentially at Farragunda as a farmhand, which is pretty cool. My contract says farmhand now, so I've gone from chef to, to actual farmer, um, which is really cool. And we've, so I've taken over a couple of um, the market garden blocks and built, building up the soil health at the moment and have all of my little seedlings in the greenhouse there, um, which will be going in. So i um, we're going to be farming the land over um, spring and summer, which is really great. And I, I love getting my hands dirty. And like I said, being part of the project from the ground up, um, the restaurant itself um, is still in approval um, processes. So once that kicks off, um, we'll go into construction. But we're looking at a few different avenues of um, some pop-up events over summer with the produce that I'll be growing, which is pretty cool. It'll, it's the first time I will have actually been able to use all of the own my own produce that I've grown in the menus itself. So I'm pretty excited about that, but it's really hard to make plans for this. You know, how are you supposed to make plans for, um, you know, pop-up events and things like that when you're not really entirely sure what that's going to look like? So I think that's one of the hardest things that um, restaurants and chefs are dealing with at the moment is, you know, things change every day. So how, yeah, how are we meant to, to plan for these reopenings and staffing and ordering and menu you know, concepts and that sort of stuff. Yeah, it is very, very challenging and I think exhausting and kindness, as you say, is going to be important for everybody. I think, you know, people that work in restaurants are going to need to be kind to themselves and to one another. Like everyone is going to be getting back up to speed and what it means to be, you know, at speed might be quite a different thing to what it was before. So, um, but yeah, we can never have too much kindness, kindness to the soil and to one another. Other and to ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, Simone, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, check in with you and find out what's happening. And uh, it's, yeah, I think the pandemic has given so many people different opportunities to consider where they're at and what they want to do and the energy that they want to bring to the, the, the things they have planned for the future. Um, personally, I cannot wait to experience what you're going to create at Barragunda. And um, I wish you all the best with getting those seedlings in the ground and watching everything thrive. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to need it, I think. (laughs) Thanks so much for chatting. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>